As a way of beginning, I need to describe to you a, very, a, my, a new fad trend, thing, trend activity that I am very into. And I'm going to look for a show of hands here. Who here has heard about the game Wordle? I see a few hands. You can look around. I'm not alone. I see you. We understand what this is. I'm going to do my best job explaining what Wordle is right now to everyone, which is okay. It's a relatively new thing. Wordle is a new word game phenomenon. Going back in November, there was about 90 people who were trying to do this on this online site. And now there's over 2 million. And what it is, it is a daily word puzzle game where you have six tries to get the word right. Now, it's a five-letter word, and each time you guess, like, oh, you can guess, like, is it this word? And then you submit it, and it tells you if you get a letter right or wrong, or you're telling you maybe you got the right letter, it's in the wrong place. But either way, this is it. It's a new word every day, and millions of people are doing this every single day. And it's fascinating. Why does something like this get trained? It's not an app. You can, anyone can access this by going on the internet. So you go on the internet, and then you look up, and, and it keeps track. It keeps track of if you've submitted your reply. So if you don't get it in the six times, you, you unfortunately don't, you fail for that day, which is really scary for me because I just started doing it, and I don't want to fail, but I will fail because it's actually very difficult. It's quite the challenge. Uh, but it keeps track. And then what people do on social media is they share their Wordle results. If you've seen, um, if we go to the next image, if, if you see, this is actually a screenshot of my effort yesterday. This is my effort yesterday on Facebook. But if you, you see screenshots, the, the rows tell you how many attempts, and it tells you what letters you got right. And so if you've seen this, I think it's very popular on Twitter, and I'm not as active on Twitter, if I'm going to be honest with you. But you can see these images, and this is the, the hidden thing. The thing is, people are playing the word game. So one, that graphic kind of catches on. It's really unique if you know what it is. You see it and you get it. Um, but I think one of the reasons that I think this puzzle game is, is kind of caught a lot of traction, if it makes sense, is because everyone who's participating in this is trying to solve the same puzzle. Everyone every day is trying to solve the same puzzle. They're trying to figure out what is that word that day. And I think in a lot of ways, we are in the same position as part of following Christ, as part of being part of the church. And one of the questions we seek to answer and reflect on is this. How do we love in community? It's almost like a little bit of a puzzle. How do we do this well? What has God invited us to do and how do we do it? How do we love like Jesus in community? It's a little bit of a puzzle where all of us are attempting to answer as best we can each day. And we're approaching it in different ways. We have different strategies for how to go about that. But it's a question that all of us are attempting to answer. In 1 John, we've been reflecting over the first two sections so far of the book. And it's this beautiful letter, a proclamation. John, a firsthand witness of Jesus, saying, We saw the word of life. He came. He lived among us. He died and he rose again. And last week I talked about the foundation of what is for John, gospel, which is God is light. For John, God is light is the good news, that Christ shines a light into our world. That's the foundation. He applies it by saying, what does that mean for us? Okay, we walk in the light. And he clarifies, what, how do we walk in the light? Because that's actually far more difficult than we often acknowledge. What well, looks like confession. And it looks like confessing and admitting that we don't have it all figured out along the way because God is faithful to forgive us. 
we have complete assurance that Christ has forgiven us. It is not about us being the best kinds of people, but about the being the people that are wholly submitted to God. That's the foundation of what he's saying. And I've already alluded to it, but we're going to get into it a little more, that John has alluded that he's writing this letter because he knows that there's some people that have left the church because of false teaching, because of false assumptions about this way of light that Jesus has invited them into. And I'm going to highlight a few of those along the way here. Because in our passage, what I find is the easiest way to divide up what John just read for us is to look at some of these statements where it says, whoever says, whoever claims, anyone who claims, your versions might translate those differently. But it talks about three claims that the people who are following a different way make. And John wants to talk about those and talk about how the word of life speaks to them and how the word of life speaks to you and I. We might be tempted to think these things. So let's step into it and ask, what, what, what are these things? Because they ultimately help us answer and reflect on bigger questions. Like, what does it look like to walk in darkness? What does it look like to walk in light? Those are significant things. And at times we're clearer about those than others. So the first the first. What claim that John wants to talk about is this. They claim that they know who Jesus is. They know who God is. That's, that's what these te- these, these, this group claims. They know who God is. They're pulling away from the community, the church. But see, I, I know who God is, but I'm going to pull away from the community anyways. The first verse says this, because John's getting at that. First John 2, 3, we know that we have come to him if we keep his commands. So we're getting some new things here already in the book. This idea of new commands, that that is somehow going to reveal what's happening in your heart or in my heart. New commands. That word know is really interesting because it's actually a really common Greek word, gnosko. Like that's a very common Greek word. But here, what it normally means is to know something to be true. And what was true for John is that Jesus truly did come. The incarnate word of life, that Jesus really came But it's not just knowing that that happened. There's a good quote here I found this week that I thought was really helpful. It says this, knowing him, Jesus, or God, is not knowing facts about him, nor simply being able to recognize him operating in circumstances or in other people. It is knowing him personally for oneself. This knowing that John's speaking to, and to us as well. It's about knowing God personally. Knowing God personally. I think of Jesus when his disciples are starting to get really worried, especially in the Gospel of John. He really tells a lot about how they start to get worried because he starts to tell them, I'm going to leave you. And they start to worry, what are we going to do when you leave us? And, And he starts to, in some way that can be confusing when you read it, he starts to point to the fact that my spirit, I will send my spirit with you. You have experienced the Father because you have experienced me. And Philip is really confused. There's a, there's a disciple named Philip, if you know this. He's very confused. But then Jesus tells Philip, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? We might be concerned, do I know Jesus personally enough? But if we've had an encounter with Jesus, we've started the relationship It is the question of how much we invest to personally be present to Jesus, to invest in that relationship. But it's not an an endeavor to how much can I cram out my head about Jesus that makes me a better follower of him. It's about a way of life and relationship. 
The other thing in that verse, that, it, that very first verse of 1 John 2, 3, one, what does no mean? But also if we keep his commands. If we keep his commands, what does he mean by commands? You know, really, if I could just sum it up, it is this. The command Jesus is referring to is Christ's command. It's his way of life. It's what he witnessed to us, which is to love one another. To love one another. I, I think one of the reasons that the world still to this day might not believe in the cross, the resurrection, and the eternal salvation in Christ, but they are drawn in to this sort of wonder of Jesus and how he loved people. Like that is enough to get people to listen. And if they listen long enough, they'll hear how much he says about himself and what he models and walks in. It's loving one another towards the cross. Like that's what Jesus does, and that's what he invites us to. It's so compelling. And later in 1 John, he says this, because I think it helps capture what this point is all about. And this is the command, loving one another, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So just that first verse there, the idea of believing that Jesus is the son of God, and also believing that he's called us to love one another, that is essential. God commands us to believe in Jesus. He asks us to follow him and love each other like Jesus And I think about the way the world talks about love, and it ends up being really confusing when I think about what I'm called to as a follower of Jesus, because it doesn't seem to add up. The song that always rings in my head, if we're going to talk about love, is the Beatles song. All you need is love. That song. I think it's so warm and fuzzy, very wonderfully hippie, if that makes sense. You know, all you need is love. Love is all you need. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. And then this is what it says. This is the thing that's crazy to me. It's easy. Is love easy? I experienced this as like love being one of the hardest things I could ever do. As a father, as a husband, as a friend. To truly love those around me is one of the hardest things I could ever attempt to do. And it is only because I've seen Christ move in my life. He's worked in my life and drawn me to a way of life that I wouldn't have chosen otherwise. Is love all you need? Because eventually we realize how hard love is. So for John, he's looking. I think John knows how hard love is. And he doesn't say this not knowing it. But he's looking at these people that have fallen away from the church and community And he sees that they don't obey the command. They say they know God, but they are not loving the people around them. So then they must not know God. The next verse, 2-4, says this. Whoever says, that's that line. This is who he's talking about. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. And how do these lies happen? I think they happen very easily, if I'm going to be honest. The idea that, oh, I would just you know, want to not lie and be truthful about how I'm actually living, how I'm actually doing, that I'm actually embracing this call to love the people around me. Because eventually, you know, you you get unsatisfied with where you are in that. That the warm fuzzies, the easy love, it's not enough. That way of going about it just won't cut it. When you experience real challenge, real hurt and real difficulty, you need something greater, something deeper, something that lasts the test of time. 
And that's why for 1 John, it's a big theme, the love in the fellowship of God. Love for God and for other people is a way of obedience. Love for God and others, it is a way of obedience. You can look at the next verse to see that. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. That love is an expression of obedience to Christ, and it reveals the true relationship already happening. Obeys here is present tense in, in 2.5, which means it's ongoing. That means we constantly are in this word trying to resolve the puzzle, trying to resolve the difficulty day in, day out of seeking to obey And that what John says here is part of that journey, it makes us complete. It makes us complete in the love of God. The rest of 2.5 is this. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Remember that whoever claims, this is the next section of what's happening here in 1 John 2. Whoever claims to live in him. So how do we live in him? Well, one of the things John says is about an old and a new command. The old message you have heard, if that stood out to you when we read. 1 John 2, 7, it says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Now that might make sense. Okay, I've heard the message already in there. Jesus is the word of life, the incarnate. We are to proclaim what we've seen and heard, and that will draw people into fellowship with him. That's what we've heard, right? Well, he also says there's a new command, so it almost gets a little confusing, but it's not, I promise. The next verse says this, yes, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. That might sound confusing, but they're actually one and the same. One is intended to invite you to behold Jesus as the word of life. This has always been what the scriptures have been preparing us to do, to see Jesus, to experience him. Not if we happen to live in first century history, but today. That it's been prepared for us to experience and see and hear this. But the next one is about a new command that we see in Jesus and we also see within each other. Love happening. And part of this is the darkness is already passing away. The light is shining. And Jesus in the gospel, a gospel of John, already refers to this idea of as a new command. If you go to John 13, it says this, a new command I give you. This is Jesus. Love one another. He sees that as a new command in some way. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. You can think of the, the, this idea that comes from the Old Testament because Jesus is invited to distill what is the way of the law. What is the greatest commandment? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is modeling that but saying, if you're going to truly love your neighbor as yourself, this is the kind of sacrificial love that I'm showing you now. And in some way, the way Jesus talks about this in the Gospels is saying, this is new enough for you, I certainly hope. This is new enough. This, I'm taking you further. I'm taking you deeper into a way of life I've always intended you to live into. So if I could just review a little bit, the people stepping away from the fellowship are people that feel like they know who God is, but they don't love like him. The people who step away from the fellowship are the people who feel like they live in him, but are not participating with these things. 
And then the third thing, and this is the last few verses of this section, it is the people who want, who say they're in the light, but couldn't live farther from it. How do we embrace a being, a reality and purpose in the light that God invites us to? 2.9, if you're reading with me, it says this. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. The next verse, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, but there is nothing in them to make them stumble. I think about stumble, it's like you really do, when you walk through the darkness, you bump into a lot of things. I mentioned a few weeks ago, I try as much as I can to walk through my house and not hit the things, and I still do, especially when things move. You know, and we can't help that. But I look at these things, and they have a weight to them, this idea Do I think I'm in the light, and yet I'm stumbling? Do I have people around me that would point point that out to me otherwise? Am I just coming apart? The last verse of this section says this, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. That word hatred really stuck out to me this week. That idea of what does hatred look like? You know, I I could make some arguments around how the opposite of love is not necessarily hatred. But either way, I have to deal with hatred in my life. Hatred as a difficult thing. And I think few of us would say, wow, I, I really hate that person over there. You know, a few of us would actually say that. But then when you take it back and look at what's happening in your heart, the frustrations, which is just a low-level word for anger and, for, and hatred, um, you take a step back and you look and you start to ask yourself, or I would encourage you to, how is my lack of love for this person, that person, these people, how is my lack of love for this re- world around me, how is that a path towards hatred? And what actually is Hatred. The question I want to ask, and I want to spend a little time because I think this is, you know, we prayed a little bit earlier in the service to look at and for God to reveal what are the things that hold us back? What are the things that hold us back? And I say, what are the things that hold us back from love and community? Well, one of the things I think is related to how we experience different emotions and express them and process them. And one of the ones I want to spend a little time reflecting on is anger. What is the difference between anger and hatred? Have you ever thought about that? What is the difference between anger and hatred? Is it just an intensity thing? Or is there something more? You know, Proverbs and James, they talk about being quick to listen and slow to anger. Psalms 37, it says, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only towards evil. But look at this passage in Ephesians 4, 26. It probably sounds familiar to you. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give a devil a foothold. Okay, so we've heard that. I've definitely thought about that in my marriage. I'm not going to sleep angry. I am not going to do it. We're going to talk through this. We're going to pray with each other. We're going to practice forgiveness. But it's, it's speaking to something about the fact that as we give, go deeper and deeper into that experience, that we can give devil a foothold. It's associated with bitterness, rage, jealousy, slander. There's a paraphrase of Psalm 4 that I think is really great, and I want to share it with you. It says this. 
Think long, think hard. When you, are an ang- when you are angry, don't let it carry you into sin. When night comes, in calm, be silent. But also in 2 Timothy, it says this, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22. What does it look like to pursue righteousness from a pure heart? To pursue love in a community with a pure heart in relationships with others? You know, I, really, you could look at First John, and I almost can feel like I have heard the sermon. Just stop hating everybody. Love everybody. That would be simpler. But I think what God wants to do in our hearts is much more profound, much deeper, and involves a lot of hard work, honesty, and humility. And so one of the examples I want to show about this is by a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Kubler-Ross. And she is a person who founded this principle of the five stages of grief, which you might have heard. She's behind that. She's, you know, all these different stages of grief you might go through. It's a foundational psychological principle. But as she was teaching, she, um, she was a teaching fellow, and she was invited to basically, before she was not known, to basically step in, and I will be a guest lecturer for like the most popular class in a, in a university in, Denver, in Colorado. And so she steps in, and she, uh, she's a very small, shy woman, and she, but no one knows what to expect. There's not exactly a lot of excitement about this woman coming in. But then early on in her teaching, she brings in a 16-year-old patient. She brings in a 16-year-old patient who's dying of leukemia. And, this, you know, it's a class. They're, they're all training to be nurses and doctors, and so, okay. This is a significant case they've heard of. Maybe they haven't had too much experience with it. And so what Dr. Kubler-Ross invites them to do is she invites them, why don't you ask some questions? Get to, get to know the patient. And so then they start to ask questions about tests. They start to ask questions about her blood cell count and about her chemotherapy, clinical questions. And then finally, the teenager blows up on them. 16-year-olds. She explodes with anger and begins putting questions back at them. What was it like to not, what do you think it's like for me to not be able to dream about my future? Or to never even think I could go to high school prom? Or to never think I'll be able to actually go on a date? Well, I get to grow up. Why won't you people tell, why won't people just tell you the truth? You can feel in those words the anger she's feeling. She's feeling really difficult, painful anger. When, and when the lecture ended, a lot of the students were just in tears. And this is what Dr. Kubaras says, now you're acting like human beings instead of scientists. I wanted to tell you that example because I believe like anger, like many things, it's just one example of many. It can reveal what is actually happening in our life. That it is a vehicle for connection and authenticity. Like for me personally, the relationships I feel closest with are the people that I've known I've been angry with and the people that have been angry with me. And yet I've been able, we've been able to hold those intense emotions. And because of that, we are closer. That's what I think is one of the things that can easily hold us back. That we don't think that we can handle all these things in love. The anger is not the opposite of love. 
They're one of the strongest emotions that we can experience, but anger can reveal who we are. And if we hold it back, if we try to push down our anger, it can hold us back from actually truly connecting with each other about the things to which actually matter. You know, there's, that, there's an illusion that sometimes happens in the church that good people or good Christians would not express anger and the best Christians would never even feel it. And I don't think that is true at all. So then if we act like that's true, we're living a lie. So what does it look like for us to actually be living truthfully and honestly with each other and be loving? Because one of the things that I experienced growing up is that I, I was afraid that anger would be destructive, if you've ever thought about it that way that anger destroys, that anger hurts. And I've missed out all the ways that actually, when I've had this experience of anger with people, I, it's creative. It creates new possibilities. I feel closer with the other person who expressed anger to me. And then also at the same time, like when I have experienced anger and frustration, which takes a little bit for me to get there, but when I get there and I share that, I actually feel closer with the people I share that with. Now, that's doing that with a lot of wisdom and grace and gentleness. I'm not saying I do it perfectly. And all, now I'm starting to wonder if I'm going to get a bunch of angry emails. <laughs> but that's more of an aside. This is a way of deeper life and love. Just as we can be honest with each other, I hope we can be just as compassionate. Anger becomes hatred when we lose compassion for other people. Anger becomes hatred when you lose compassion for the other person. I think in a lot of ways, it's, that's when anger goes bad, when it stops thinking about the well-being of other people and just caves in, it just reacts, stops thinking about the humanity of others. There is a, um, a pastoral counseling writer that I really appreciated thinking about this. And as he reflects on this, he's, he says, and it just sounds like scripture, so I just want to share that instead of love, there is hate. Instead of grace, there is punishment. Instead of reconciliation, there is alienation. Instead of forgiveness, there is vengeance. Instead of healing, there is wounding. That's when anger takes over and becomes hatred. But anger, as a way of expressing love and truthfulness, is powerful. Love is not the absence of anger, but love is Christ-centered obedience through honesty and truth and compassion to others. And so... I believe that the church is called to be a place of honesty. And there's just a lot. It's tempting to not quite go to a place of honesty because we fear all the things that could happen. But we miss out on the possibilities that God wants to do in us. Do, do through, really, the fact that we feel righteous anger sometimes. Or we feel hurt and we don't know how to express it. The more and more we have relationships that can hold those emotions, that can hold the conflicts, that can hold the intensity of those times we also can find that we are going in greater depth than fruit of the Spirit. The puzzle I mentioned, the puzzle of love and community. How can the community and the church be the most real fruitful place in the whole world? It is through stepping in the love of Christ. It is through following Jesus in every way. The sort of, sometimes in my messages, I try to think of what is a phrase that captures everything I would want to say today, and it is this. To follow Jesus in every relationship. To follow Jesus in every relationship with his truth, with his honesty, and with his compassion. As I say that, you might think, I do that with some of my relationships. What about the ones you don't? 
What are the ones you've neglected? How do you follow Jesus through your relationships, through the way God has called you to be in community here and now? When you follow him in those places, you're left with lots of choices of how to love in deeper, more profound ways. It's not always about you and about what you have to say. Sometimes it is best for us to listen. But we should always seek truth and honesty with each other. And we find assurance, if you remember that. This journey and way of life is built on the confidence and assurance of God's grace. That we have hope in what he's doing. That he's called us to express love because he's living inside of you. He's working on your life. And it is not this, this process that's meant to just be stuck in the, internal, in, the, in the internal. It's meant to be something you step out of, something you live out, the do in relationship. I always say there are things that God's calling you in the community of the church that you cannot do unless you're in the community of the church. The way in which God wants to lead you to be more and more like Jesus, it means being part of a community. And that for many people is very uncomfortable because you can't hide. There are times when you are going to be in the darkness and you would want people to speak love to you and invite you out of that. There are times when God wants you to speak light and love to other people and welcome people out of the darkness. This is why we're here. It's not someone else's role. It's your role. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. One of the big themes last week was this idea of confession. When you see and experience things in your own heart, that you can always go before the Lord. And that's so essential. This idea that I see darkness in my life and I'm going to seek, you know, repentance for it. Well, that go, and then going to the Lord. And I would encourage, we did this last week. I would encourage you to do it today. We're going to have songs of response and there's space for you to pray, to sing, to listen for God, to ask, what is he calling you to do? But don't, don't act like the ugly dark things are not there. God in his mercy already knows they're there (laughs) and he loves you. And he doesn't want you to continue life with those things like they don't matter. They shape everything. They touch everything. They will affect the people around you. You can't hide it. But can you follow Jesus with every relationship in truth, honesty, and compassion? Can you ask the Lord to heal those things? There's a quote. It was Martin Luther King Jr. Day this past week. It says says this, hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life, but love illuminates it. God wants to illuminate and shine light into your life and welcoming you to a better way because that is the good life he has for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, none of us, a lot of us come apart, you know, we come upon our lives with a lot of honesty. We've not done everything the way that we would have wanted to. And Lord, we deal with real pain, real woundedness. But Lord, we hear your voice speaking over us and we know you've called us to a better way. And it's a better way that at times is scary, at times is uncertain and confusing. But Lord, it is this way of beholding you as the source of life and goodness and love. And then taking that love and wanting to share that with all those around us. And really, in truth, like, there are times when it is hard to stay on it. But Lord, you call us back to yourself. You are merciful and gracious. 
And that is the hope we have, not bound in all the works around us, but bound in your work, your love, that nothing will take away from the sacrifice you gave on the cross and the new life you have ensured for all of us. And so, Lord, it's in that spirit that we say will come to you. Lord, I, I just pray for everyone here that we seek you, that we come to you. We hear you calling to us. We know that the safest place for us to be is in your presence and nowhere else. Lord, I just pray your love would pour out upon us as a church here in Edmonton and beyond. Lord, to be people who know what it's like to be loved people and to share that with others. And to do whatever we can to do it truthfully, honestly, with compassion, because this is why you've called us to be where we are. In our friendships, in our families. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.